Father, truth be told, that crying child gives voice to the anguish of our hearts. It's not inappropriate. It's not inappropriate to grieve and to weep at death and separation. I've said it many times, that death is our enemy. It is no friend. There are times when it comes and it is a source of relief, perhaps. But it is no friend for the only reason we have death is because of sin and sin is no friend. We were created for life and we are headed to life. But in between for almost all of us, barring the rapture of the church, lies death. And our hearts are in anguish over it. We hate it. We hate its effect. And at the same time, we love how you redeem it. For death has not the final word. You do. And death is not the victor. Christ is. And death for the believer always emanates into resurrection. And so we look forward to that and we hold on to it. It's all we have. It's Christ and His resurrection and our in being united to Him, resurrection with Him. It's all we have and it's all we need. We need nothing more. That's enough. So would you strengthen us in this day? Would you give us hope and confidence in you in the coming minutes? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a broken world. We've seen that this week. Two teenage students in Granbury died suddenly and tragically this week. Several of our counselors went to Cornerstone Christian School to meet with some of the students and some of the teachers on Monday morning to try and counsel and encourage and give hope in a really desperate situation. Ruby Sargent's last sibling died away died last week. And for those of you who are at those stages of life, you can appreciate the weight and the burden of that. One of our members experienced an accident at work this week that barring a slight difference in his circumstances would likely have been deadly to him. Several other church members have been hospitalized, experienced several illnesses. And of course, Sonny Murphy, sitting over there last Sunday morning, on Monday morning, fell to a heart attack and never awakened again. We have been reminded of the brevity of life and the harshness of death. The world is broken. The world is so broken. And the most difficult part of the brokenness is the intrusion of death. When we're young, death just 
doesn't seem imminent, does it? It's, it's, it's this thing that we know about, but it doesn't seem a reality. It surely doesn't seem imminent, but it is. Sometimes it comes slowly and almost imperceptibly, and sometimes it comes with suddenness as it has this week, but death is a reality. It is a reality for all of us. It is coming soon for all of us. So we're reminded of the reality of James chapter 4. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So how will we respond when death intrudes? What will we think about in our suffering And what we think about as we contemplate death in particular, it's those kinds of questions that Paul addresses in the middle of Romans chapter 8. And the theme of the verses that I want to consider is simply this. Always remember your coming glorification. Always remember, meditate, think on, dwell on, consider, hold fast to, Persist in, delight in your coming. It's coming soon. Glorification, final redemption, complete sanctification, fullness of life, death nevermore. Always remember your coming glorification. Paul will not minimize suffering in these verses. And he will not attempt to remove the reality of death, but he will tell us that there is a new and better way to think about our suffering and our death. And he will, in particular, give us two thoughts to consider about suffering and death. Always remember your coming sanctification and do so by thinking two particular thoughts about that glorification. Let me just back up and give you a little bit of context. And I think I have two and a half pages of notes and I don't have time for that. So let's see what we can do here. Let me give you the context of what Paul's saying. In verse 17, he says this, the spirit testifies with our spirit, starting in verse 16, that we're children of God. Verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, And fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. His point in the beginning part of that verse is that we are inheritors. We are heirs. Four times in verses 17, he has noted that believers in Jesus Christ are children of God and or sons of God. Verse 14, uh, if you're led by the Spirit of God, these are Sons of God. We have verse 15, a spirit of adoption as sons. The spirit testifies, verse 16, that we are children of God. Verse 17, and if children, four times, son, son, children, children, we're children. And the overflow of the reality of our being children of God is that we are also heirs of God. And that's his point at verse 17. We're also heirs. Now, most of the time when you're an heir and you inherit something, you get the inheritance when the one who is bequeathing something something to you dies. But that's not the emphasis of Paul in this place. The emphasis of Paul is, and if we are children, we are heirs also. If 
if our present position is childhood, then our present position is inheritance already. We don't have to wait. What is that heirship like? Notice what he says. Verse 17, heirs also, heirs of God. We are heirs. We are immediately heirs. We are full heirs, complete heirs to all of the spiritual blessings that are available to us in Christ. I really don't have time to do this, but it's a good one, and so you need to hear it. First Peter chapter 1. What is, what is part of the blessings that come to us as heirs of God? First Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. All that is yours and it cannot be removed. That's what you have now. Notice what else he says about our heirship. We are also, he says, heirs of God. That means that God is the one who is giving the gift. God is the one who has bequeathed this blessing to us. And the emphasis is not just that the believer gets the gift. That's a reality. We're given a gift, but the emphasis is God gives it. God is the one who gives the inheritance. And oh, by the way, who is this God who gives the inheritance? Well, he's already told us in the book of Romans who that is. He is the one who was our enemy. Who was opposed to us. Who would only have given us his wrath. And now, instead of wrath, he gives inheritance. Why? Because of Christ. And because of our position in him. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul is saying, have you considered who it is who has adopted you and given it, given you this inheritance? It's God himself. All that it contains comes from God. And it gets even better. It's not just that God gives the gift, but it's that God himself is the gift. And when you're an inheritor of, of God, from God, you get... God as your treasure. Lots of places that we could go. Listen to what he says. John says in Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne. Throne of God. Saying behold the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. When you're in Christ you get God. He's not your enemy. He's your friend. He's your father. He's your beloved. And then notice what else he says about heirship. Again, verse 17, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That is, we join in the inheritance that Christ has received as the second member of the Trinity, the eternal God-man. He means That every child of God receives a full and equal inheritance of being aligned to the firstborn son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't mean that we become little gods 
But he does mean that we share in the same inheritance that Christ gets. John MacArthur has said this, every adopted child of God will receive a full inheritance with the Son. Everything that Christ receives by divine right, we will receive by divine grace. We get it all. John 1, 16, of His fullness we have received. And grace upon grace, this grace of the fullness of His gift just keeps on giving to us overflowing, superabundant, superabounding, overflowing, benevolent grace. Brothers and sisters, we are not beggars at the table. We are fully adopted by the Father and granted a full inheritance at the time of our adoption. But along with this inheritance, God's adopted sons also get something else. This is also part of the context in which he's going to say what he does in verse 18. And that is this, that God's children are sufferers. God's children are inheritors. And God's children are also sufferers. Verse 17. If children heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed... We suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. That little word, if, can be translated in a way that denotes what I think is actually going on in the text in a way that is much stronger than that. It's not if. It's more the sense of seeing that or since or because or when. When we suffer with Him, since we suffer with Him, seeing that we suffer with Him. And what the Apostle is pointing to is the certainty, the reality of our suffering. He'll talk later in the chapter about the kinds of sufferings that we will endure. Verse 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Verse 36, we're being put to death all day long. We are as sheep to be slaughtered. And what the apostle would have us to understand in verse 17 and really throughout this chapter is that there is no pathway of ease in this life for believers. If we follow Christ, you will have suffering. There's no pathway out of it. In the context, Paul is certainly talking about a variety of kinds of suffering, but I think he has laid out in this chapter that he's thinking about two things in particular. I think he's talking about the suffering of sin. We see that in verses 3 and 4. But he also is thinking about suffering that comes in the form of physical Suffering and physical death. Verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. This body is dying and it will die. Verse 11, The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's that's physical death, physical life that he's talking about. He's not softening it. He's having us to see that suffering. Difficulty, trial, death. 
is a reality and a part of the Christian life. Our Savior suffered. Luke 24 says, Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer all these things and to enter His glory? And if we are aligned with Him, then we likewise will suffer with Him. And then, brothers and sisters, not to steal my thunder, but to steal my thunder, we will also enjoy glorification with Him in the end. We're God's children. Verse 17. He treats us like His eternal Son. He gives us an inheritance with Christ, fully sharing in the inheritance of Christ And He graces us, and I use that word intentionally, He graces us with the privilege of suffering with Christ. I don't know about your ears, but to my ears that sounds wrong. Sons shouldn't suffer. Enemies should suffer. Rebels should suffer. Slaves should suffer. But sons shouldn't suffer. But the promise is made that sons do and will suffer. And that leads us to Paul's next thought and his instruction for us. How should we think about this suffering? Now we come to the meat of the passage. Verse 18. What should you be thinking? One, consider your sufferings. Brothers and sisters, you must think about your sufferings. Notice what Paul says. I consider that the sufferings of this present time. When Paul says, I consider, he's not saying I'm giving a personal opinion. Here's my idea. You know, I'm kind of been mulling this over and been thinking about it, been in study this week and considering this, thinking about it. And I'm coming to this conclusion. No, it's not what he's saying. He's saying, I consider as the form of an accounting term. It's, it's the word that's used for imputation of righteousness. It's a word that means to give account or to add to the account of another. It is to reckon, to contemplate. It, 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 it is about a reasoning process. And Paul is saying with this that he calculated the cost of suffering in this world and he's come to a settled conclusion. He's considered all of the facts about suffering and all of the facts about Christ, all of the facts about the resurrection, and he is fully and completely convinced. Of what is he fully convinced? Verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. There's no comparison between what is to come in glory and what we have now on earth. However great his suffering is on earth, it cannot reach the smallest distance toward the heights of glory. No matter the weight of his burden, it will not register on the scale when it is compared to the glory that is to come. And Paul does something really interesting in this verse. He says, I consider the sufferings. And then he says, those sufferings are not worthy to be compared. 
In other words, when you think about your sufferings, don't you think about them in the same way that you think about heaven. Don't put them on equal status. Don't say they're of equal weight. Don't even say they're in the same ballpark. They're not only in the same, not in the same ballpark. They're not in the same zip code. They're not in the same state. They're not in the same universe. Paul is echoing here. Second Corinthians chapter four. If you were thinking, you were thinking he's got to end up there some point. Here it is. In verse 11, he says, 2 Corinthians 4, We who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, the suffer, so that the life of Christ may be also manifested in our mortal flesh. We're identified with Christ in such a way that repeatedly, over and over and over and over and over, we're being delivered over to death. We're constantly dying. And we will die. And then he says, verse 16, we do not lose heart. For though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Because, why can you say that? That's audacious. Why can you say that? Verse 17, because momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. Brothers and sisters, don't mishear what he's saying. He is not saying suffering is light. Suffering is short. Suffering is easy. He would not walk into a funeral parlor and say to a grieving person, get over it. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It is weighty. But it is not in comparison to what we get. We must have the appropriate counterbalance to suffering when we are weighing the, the, the magnitude of our suffering. And the counterbalance is eternity with God and Christ. The counterbalance is glorification. The counterbalance is righteousness. So Paul would have us to say, think about your suffering, but don't compare it to what will come for you in Christ. So think about your sufferings, but think about your sufferings in the way that God would have you to think about them with the right comparison. The second consideration of our sufferings, that is, Your sufferings are various. The word suffering is a a broad term. It, It can refer to things that are misfortunes. But I think Paul is thinking very specifically here about the sufferings that are related to the brokenness of this world. Look at verses 19 and following. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation. Is just waiting for redemption. Every time you see a fallen tree, it's, it's the creation groaning and saying, I'm waiting for redemption. 
Verse, nine, uh, verse 20, creation was subjected to futility. It was subjected, end of verse 20. It was in slavery, verse 21, in slavery to corruption. And we know, verse 22, that the whole of creation is groaning and suffering the pains of childbirth. There's longing and subjection and corruption and groans and pains. That's this world. It's it's Paul's way of saying this world is so desperately broken. There's fallenness in creation. And while the suffering is real, notice that he likens it to the pains of childbirth. That's verse 22. The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. It is to denote that our suffering is real. It is intense. I've been in the room when a woman delivers a baby twice with my wife. And it was intense. Passionate. Strong. It's not pseudo-pain. It's the real deal. But... It's not permanent. It's temporary. There's joy on the other side of a child's birth so that the pain of the moment is gone. Tuesday afternoon, I went to see Sandy and then I left Sandy and Sonny and I went to the hospital to see the Warrens and a new baby. And I didn't get to hold the baby. Ray Jean did which is appropriate. She's better at it than I am. And then I looked at Regine holding that baby and then I looked at Megan and she was radiant. Which is not to say she wasn't hurting 24 hours earlier, but is to say she was on the other side of the pain. And brothers and sisters, there's pain in this world. It's okay to say it. It's okay to say death is bitter. It is. It's harsh. But we dare not get locked in there. There's something better coming. One commentator has noted that the apostle says these are birth pains, not death pains. They're the beginning. And beyond those pains comes something blessed. The pain is not definitive. It is not final. Notice what else the apostle says. It is, verse 22, until now. It is until now. The suffering of the world was true the instant that God spoke the words of Genesis 3 after the sin of Adam and Eve. They were true. The suffering was true all through the patriarchs and all through the prophets in the Old Testament. They were true through the time of Christ, through the time of Paul's writing. And it is true today. A brother's suffering is relentless. No part of creation and no one living will escape it. It was then and it is now. And it is that. Reality that provokes us to groan. Verse 23. So creation has been groaning. 
but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. We, we, we've tasted. We've been given the Spirit of God. We know the Spirit of God in us. We, we see the beginnings of redemption. We see the beginnings of sanctification. We see transformation in our own lives and hearts, and we see it in others, and we, we've tasted of that goodness, and then the tasting of that morsel of the goodness of the Spirit of God gives us a longing for the full thing. And so he says in verse 23, having the first fruits of the Spirit, longing for the rest, we even in ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. This groaning is a symphony of sighs. It's an agony, a longing for the undoing of Genesis chapter 3. We want to go home and Shred all of the frailties of this sinful flesh. This is, this is all the Old Testament sayings. How long, O oh Lord, how long? That's the groaning. We long for it. Creation groans. You groan. And I groan. You know someone else who groans? Jesus. Groans. Look at John chapter 11. You know this section. This is Lazarus dying. Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick. Mary and Martha said, would you come? They'd seen him heal. They trusted that he could heal. Verse 6 tells us he heard that he was sick and then he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He wanted to make sure that Lazarus would die before he got there. So that he could demonstrate his resurrection power. He got to the tomb where they had put Lazarus. Mary was there. Verse 33, therefore when Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. I'm not a ranchman. I've been on a horse on a few occasions. It's probably best that I stay off of them in all honesty. I know very little about him. But I know at times that a horse will snort disgust and anger that's this word this is this is a bucking bronco that longs to get rid of the rider on top of it and it's angered and it's intense that's that word deeply moved it's indignant anger it is violent displeasure not only is christ that way but he is troubled he's agitated He's trembling. And the response was far more than just empathy for his friends that are grieving. He was angry over sin and the devastation it wrought in the lives of his friends. And because of that, we read in verse 35, Jesus wept. His weeping was his groaning over the effect of sin and over the effect of death. This is the bitterness and the harshness. And our Savior understands and our Savior groans. He is indeed a man of sorrows. And he is acquainted with grief. 
He hates what has happened. And we need to hear this. We need to hear that Christ groaned. We need to hear that Christ knows. And we need to hear that Christ acted. And so the death for Lazarus wasn't final. And because of his own resurrection, the death for us isn't final either. Your sufferings are various. Not everyone experiences the same sufferings. It's all different. All those words in Romans chapter 8 denote a variety of different kinds of suffering. There are all kinds of it. But the one that is common to all of us, that is coming to all of us, is death. And everyone knows that heartache and everyone knows that pain. Yeah, the sufferings are various. The death is common. And Paul would have us to think one last thing about our sufferings. They are now. Notice what he says, verse 18. The sufferings of this present time. He doesn't mean by that they're here for the time being. He doesn't mean that he has sufferings and others don't. He means that the sufferings are of this age. They're in this realm. They're in this circumstance. And there is an implied contrast that he doesn't see, doesn't say, but you get it. They are of this present time and what? Not the next one. They're only for now. And things will be different very soon. There is coming a time when all of these things will not be. Which is what he would have us consider next. And that is your glorification. Even as you must think about your suffering, you must think about glory. And you must think about the fact that it is incomparable. Notice what he says. They are not worthy. These things, these sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory. The word glory can refer to the outshining, the radiance of God's beauty, the, the, the manifestation of all that he is. To say the glory of God is to say that uh, we are revealing what God is like and he has revealed what he himself is like when he reveals his glory. But it also means the place where his glory resides in heaven. It's almost impossible to separate the two. God's inherent glory and the place where his glory resides. But Paul particularly seems to be pointing to the place where we will go. And what he means us to know is that we must learn to give heaven and our future the weight it deserves. We are far too earthly minded. We think far too much about what we will suffer here. And what we will receive here. And we are far too prone to think too little about what we will receive in heaven as the completion of our joy. We can think about heaven in a lot of different ways. I've got lots of verses here. And we'll just summarize it. We could think about the beauty of heaven. We could think about the restored relationships and the new ones in heaven. 
We could talk about the sinlessness and the complete freedom from the flesh. We could talk about the absence of human frailty and absence of illness. And we can talk about the immensity of seeing Jesus when we get to heaven. And all of those things are true. I think what Paul's emphasis in this particular passage is this. He wants us to focus on the duration of heaven. And I say that because of one little word. The sufferings of this present time. Verse 22, we are suffering until now. However long we experience suffering, it cannot compare to heaven and what is then. Heaven is incomparable. Why? It is incomparable because of infinite blessings and infinite time. The joy we will have is infinite and full and complete and it is unending. And brothers and sisters, it's just, there's just no good way to express it about the magnitude of what we will get. Peter says, 2 Peter 3.8, that a thousand years in heaven is like a day and one day is like a thousand years. Okay, so let's take that analogy. The life of the average American born today is around 78 years. I found a conflicting number of data points this, uh, this week. Some said as little as 76. Some said 79 or 80, something like that. Let's split the middle and say 78. If someone lives 78, that person can expect to live about 28,500 days. And so you put that in God terms. What does God think about 28,500 days? Well, that's like 28,500,000 years in heaven. And when we've been there that long, one life, quote unquote, in heaven, eternity's just barely begun. And so, what is a month of suffering? Or what is a year of suffering? Or 30 years. Or 80 years. I'm not saying it's not hard. I am saying after 28 million years in heaven. Or one average lifetime. That compares with our time on earth. We would look back at our suffering here and say. It's just the tiniest speck of our suffering. One writer has said. Who would complain If God allowed one hour of suffering in an entire lifetime of comfort, yet we bitterly complain about a lifetime that includes some suffering when that lifetime is a mere hour of eternity. It's nothing in comparison. Oh, brothers and sisters, think of your glory and think rightly of the glory that is coming. Secondly, Consider what your glory is. It is all transforming. Notice what he says, end of verse 18. It's not to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. That is, the glory that is coming is going to be revealed. It will be known. It will be disclosed. It will be brought to light. It is the final revelation of God's work of redemption to us. Christ will reveal himself 
and we will see him. That's the revelation he's talking about. Revelation 22, there will no longer be any curse. Verse 3, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will see his face. Around 6.57 yesterday, Sonny took his last breath here and his first breath in heaven and he saw the Savior. Don't discount that as being something insignificant. Jesus calls the Apostle John his beloved disciple. John sees the vision of the revelation. And it says in chapter 1 verse 12. That he fell on his face as if a dead man. The beloved disciple sees the Savior and thinks, I'm dead. It's no, no insignificant thing. And there's no death in heaven. There's delight in the Savior. An ability to see the radiant outshining of the Savior. And embrace Him as our brother, our friend, our groom. And notice that the Apostle says, it will be revealed to us. We will look around heaven and we will see God's glory on display like it has never been displayed. And it's not just that we will see the revelation of God's glory given to us. That is Paul's emphasis. But it is also God's glory in us. And I can say that because of verses 29 and 30. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, verse 30, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. That glory is not just to us, it's in us. And what does that mean? That means, brothers and sisters, never again cancer or flu or Hood County sinuses, which raised their ugly head in my life again this morning. And no cancer and no heart attacks and no snake bites and no strokes. And never again a sin. I, I don't have an understanding of this emotionally. I don't. I, I believe it to be true. I know it's true because sin cannot reside in heaven. But brothers and sisters, there will never be the slightest inclination to sin. Can you imagine? No, you can't. Because that's all we've ever known. And the inclination in our glorification will be removed. And that's what Sonny has right now. And all of our other brothers and sisters who've gone on ahead. One writer has said, In the pleasant experiences of this life we sigh, Oh, I wish this would last forever. But it never does. When we enter into our inheritance, we will say, Oh, I wish this would last forever. 
And it will. So living for the Lord and even paying a price to follow him, we have nothing to lose and everything to inherit. If we sense the greatness of the glory to come, we cannot be typical modern people grasping and self-serving and timid. This gospel confidence makes us more than conquerors through the one who loved us enough to buy all of this for us at his own expense and pour it all into our laps as a gift of grace. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing in glory of you that will remain untransformed. It will all be changed the instant you ever you enter eternity. And while we have trouble now, that is what we must be thinking in our trouble. One last thought to think, and that is that our glory is certain. Notice what Paul says, the end of verse 18. It is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. And with that verb, he means us to understand there is certainty. It is coming. It will not be missed. It will arrive. When things seem to go wrong in life and all of the hardships that we endure persist and proliferate, what do we think about? We think about the reality that this will end, but our joy will not in heaven. This is our hope. Verse 24, in hope we have been saved. What's the hope? The hope is the glorification. But hope that is seen is not hope. No, you don't have it yet, but you don't have it because, because it's a hope. It's a confident expectation. You don't see it yet, but, but it's coming. And so with perseverance, we wait eagerly. This hope is the antidote to the lament. Things will never get better. It is going to get better. It will change. There will be transformation. Oh, brothers, I do not discount your weights are weighty. But not when they're compared to eternity that is coming soon. Oh, friend, persevere in doing good. The wait for heaven is short. The burden you carry is light. When it will be exchanged for the blessings of heaven. The severest trial will be a triviality when weighed against the gifts of heaven. Do not give in to sin. Do not give in to despair. Do not give in to hopelessness. Look past your trial to the king who is coming. Who will make you right and who will heal your wounds. And who will give you infinite and everlasting life. The world is broken. But God's plan is not broken. And he will bring his sons to glory. That's our hope. Father, we thank you for this reminder. And we acknowledge that we think too sparely about eternity about our hope that is coming. And we give too much significance to the weight of these days. In our frailty, we must acknowledge that we are not up to the weight of these days. But in Christ, you have given us what we need so that we can endure and can persist. And in Christ, you have given us 
a weight of glory that is utterly incomprehensible to us now. Would you give us that hope? We acknowledge, Father, that we have We have struggled this week in ways because we have seen the harshness and suddenness of death. It just, it just wasn't coming in our minds. Our brother was with us on Sunday and effectively gone on Monday. And so we have struggled. And Father, would you Help us to see the pathway out of the struggle is to consider the glory of Christ and the fullness of what He is going to give us. Might we rest in Him, be confident in Him, be at peace in Him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.